Conversation. I am your host, Sam Shu, and today we are talking with Dr. Eckler about high-sensitivity troponins and pathways for their use. But before we get into that discussion, I want to remind you that June is our EB Medicine birthday month, so you can get 25% off the subscription price for emergency medicine practice, pediatric emergency medicine practice, and evidence-based urgent care, all available to you at ebmedicine.net. And now, on to our conversation about troponins. Today, we're going to talk about high-sensitivity troponin, and you might hear the laughter in my voice because never before have I been so confused about the many intricate and subtle details for which we have just seemingly innumerable studies to look over. Many of our hospital emergency departments across the country are converting to high-sensitivity troponins and have been doing so really for a few years now, but they're ceasing the manufacturing of most of the regular troponins, forcing many hospitals to make this decision and transition now. And Dr. Eckler and I, having been through this transition already, have had this confusion set upon us, and I thought this would be a good topic to discuss today. And we have actually the luxury of looking at some guidelines that other hospitals have implemented because I don't want to say we're late in this process. We're probably middle of the road. There are, I think, still some hospitals that haven't made this transition yet, but we're certainly not early adopters when it comes to this. So a couple of things I wanted to discuss when it comes to troponin First, there is a helpful study, a publication in Science Direct that actually looked at the numerous numbers of high-sensitivity troponin assays available to us in the United States. I think there are nine in this study, and this was published in 2018, and it gives the 99th percentile limits and the limits of detection by assay. So I think that's a helpful number to have, whether you're doing a troponin I or a troponin T, their high sensitivity, your cutoffs for normal could be, or I should say your cutoffs for undetectable can be less than five, less than one, less than 20. It really just depends on which brand you're using. So knowing your limit of detection is a helpful number, as is knowing the 99th percentile cutoff. It looks like in most of the protocols out there, if you score above the 99th percentile on your troponin, or if your assay is detectable above that 99th percentile cutoff, that you're considered to have ruled in for an NSTEMI. So the easy population is the population supposedly who's completely undetectable or rules in. But one of the problems with the high sensitivity troponins is that we get left with a large number of people who are in the gray zone. You tracking me so far, TR? I I am. And I think so. I, I've worked in, gosh, now 12 different hospitals. And, and a couple of those were the early adopters that they were kind of part of a bigger hospital system. And they would roll out this high sensitivity troponin in the little rural hospital to start working through the problems with it. And so I kind of got to see this over the last five years start to happen more and more. And it was honestly my first experience of like, you know, I, I really like the way that we used to do things. I, I feel like our test was reliable and it was a good test. And it, it was a fun moment for me to realize that I had reached the old man get off my lawn moment in my <laughs> life. 
But so my question for you to start with is to kind of back up and zoom out a little. Were you here when the last version of troponin changed? Did that happen during your residency? When did the CKMB versus troponin transition happen yeah. in your life? Yeah, I do. I wasn't training when troponin first came out and was available. And when I first came to practice outside of residency, we were in an environment where we only had CK and CKMB, mm -hmm. and then troponin hit the market shortly after that. So yes, I do remember that transition. What was it and, like? Uh, I'd say there was some confusion at the time as well, because we were still obtaining CKs and CKMB mm. and doing Delta MBs despite having a troponin. And then there was the big debate of, well, the troponin's more sensitive. What does it mean if the MB is going up or who cares if the MB is high, if the troponin's normal? And, and so, yes, there was a brief period of time where there was significant, I would say, confusion but it was a collegial confusion. We were all swimming upstream together in this river of MB and troponin trying to figure out what to do with it. And it settled pretty quickly that we were going to pay attention to the troponin and ignore the rest because it was just much less specific than the troponin was. So it did not seem to be, for me, as difficult to transition. And it still included the traditional stuff. Like, for example, when troponin came out at the time, no one said, just get a troponin. Who cares what their risk factors are? Mm. No one said, just get a troponin. I don't care what their EKG says. If it's not a STEMI, we don't care. None of that kind of conversation occurred. It was always, what's their risk factors? What do they look like? What's the quality of their pain and the radiation and the timing and all of this stuff that we talked about, plus now the addition of the lab value that's just happened to be a troponin instead of an MB. And so that transition felt different because this transition is now muddied. We have changed the assay. We've gone from micro to nanograms per liter of the same troponin. It's the same thing, the same substance we're detecting in the blood, just at a much, much lower level. And there simultaneously has been this transition of, well, if we can detect it so much earlier, then can we start to disregard some of these other things that we've been doing, like repeating troponins, like risk stratifying patients, like even caring what the EKG shows. Short of an acute STEMI, nothing else matters if you have a completely negative below the level of detection, a high sensitivity troponin, I don't care. And then the question of, well, has it been three hours? Has it been one hour? Do we repeat this? Are you in the gray zone? There's so much now that's entered this decision-making. Uh, do you do you still have chest pain? Is it stuttered? Does it come? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does it go? I feel like I have chest pain so... now as I'm, as I'm discussing all of the, the different points in these algorithms. So let's back up for one second and say that there, there are numerous assays, and you need mm -hmm. to know what the level of detection is. That's going to be your, what I'm going to call, for lack of a better term, your negative cut point. So the, mm -hmm. below that, we can't detect for now. And then we have the people who rule in. They're above the 99th percentile. Whatever the number is for your assay, that's an easy population, I think, because they ruled in. You got one test result, and we're good. Mm -hmm. Then there's the gray zone. But the gray zone comes with two questions in my mind. First, if the first one is completely negative, 
So this is not a gray zone patient. Some people would say, well, the first one's completely negative. They ruled out. And I say, does risk stratification still enter into the equation for that patient? And I say that because there is data. There's all kinds of data. In, in 2017, for example, there was a study published that suggested that if you had an initial troponin less than five, based on the assay they were using then, mm-hmm. that your 30-day risk of death and your one-year risk of death was zero. And if that's the case, why should we consider anything else? Why should we consider risk factors or anything at all? It should just be an EKG and a troponin and you're done. But that very same study in JAMA called Association of High Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin Eye Concentration with Cardiac Outcomes in Patients with Suspected Acute Coronary Syndrome by Chapman et al., that very same study mentioned that although the 30-day cardiac death was zero and the one-year cardiac death was near zero, that there were still 59 MIs at presentation and one MI at 30 days that were missed based on just the initial troponin. So these people didn't die, but we still missed MI. The negative predictive value was still quite good, 99.5% out of this population of some 22,000 patients that were pooled in this meta-analysis. And so they were suggesting that maybe some more research could go into whether or not an initial negative troponin might be sufficient screening. But they did not intend this article to be the nail on the coffin for I get one troponin, it's negative, everybody goes home, and we're good, and it doesn't matter what your risk factors are. In fact, it even says in the conclusion that despite observing a negative predictive value of 99% in this subgroup, inconsistencies in the documentation of symptom onset across cohorts affected the analysis, and until there's further research available, serial testing is recommended in patients presenting within two hours of symptom onset, because that was their gray zone. Now, that was 2017, and fast Mm -hmm. forward now, we're in 2022, and there have been multiple studies and even some international guidelines. The European Society of Cardiology now has an algorithm for rapid rule-out that involves checking troponins at zero and one hour after presentation. And since then, that algorithm has been studied in a United States population. And in that population, in some studies, it was attached to risk stratification using the heart score, or in this case, it would be here score, really leaving out the T and using the high sensitivity troponin instead. And there are opinions all over the board about what it is we're supposed to be doing with this population of patients. So if they come in and their initial troponin is in the gray zone, so not negative and not obviously positive, now what? And it seems like most of these algorithms have incorporated a repeat troponin, but some even advocate that that's not even required if the patient has risk factors. So for example, if you're high risk and your first troponin is in the gray zone, that might be enough to justify just putting you into observation and getting serial troponins and maybe some kind of provocative testing before discharge. Or if you're in the gray zone, 
and you are exceptionally low risk, then maybe that is the population that you hold in the emergency department for a Delta troponin. And I'm interested in your experience and those other hospitals, has the Delta troponin been the plan for the people in the gray zone? Was there any accounting for risk stratification in that population at all? So I think uh, trying to keep a bigger perspective as we're going into this, this kind of ever-changing environment, it's a worthy goal of can we read the tea leaves even closer and really pick through these low risk, the low risk people that have very low troponins and find which ones as soon as possible are going to turn into real heart attacks and real enstemies. I, like, I think that is a worthy goal in that if we can make these assays really great at these really, really sensitive levels, then we can catch that. I think from when I was practicing in rural critical access hospitals, I found that most of what happened for me is if they made a troponin, I was transferring them. So if they made a troponin, it was easy and it was simple, and then they were going to get transferred. But if they didn't make a troponin, but they still had symptoms, oftentimes if they were higher risk, like when I would risk stratify them by heart or by EDACS, then my hospitalist would notice that they were pretty high risk. And instead of one negative troponin, they would want two or they would want three. But I had lower volumes then, so I didn't feel the pressure to necessarily try to admit after one or after two. There was that room to do a second or a third troponin and not feel the pressure of the patient either needs to be discharged or admitted to observation or, or whatnot. And I think that that's really now in our shop because the volume is so much higher, because the acuity is so much higher. I notice more of that pressure of make a decision when you don't quite have all the information that I think you would like to have to be able to know, because I think it, it is this spectrum of you can't just do it with two negative troponins. There are some of those people that still need to come in and get some provocative testing, something to get figured out. And I think that that's, well, as you said, looking at these four or five articles, it does seem they settle on, look, it's got to be two troponins, especially if there's something in the gray. And then even still, there's room for that risk stratification to be there. And I think that most reasonable protocols have settled somewhere around that. But I, as, a, as an emergency doctor and someone that would love simplicity, Boy, I would love it if you could tell me that there was no chance if you do two negative troponins of there being anyone that needs to be admitted and everything could be done. Yeah. I mean, the data for high sensitivity troponin at least suggests that if you have one undetectable below the level of detection troponin, that you're already 99% negative predictive value into this algorithm for cardiac death. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. But but if you have two of them, then if you've done the delta for whatever reason, if, if, you, if your first one was negative, but the patient is less than three hours from onset of chest pain and you want to get the second one and you get it and it's negative, I, that patient seems like almost guaranteed that they're going to avoid an observation or admission at that point, regardless of all of their risk factors, which is opposite of what we were doing with the previous generation of troponin. And in this gray zone, which when you look at the distribution of these troponins, the 99th percentile is going to get admitted for NSTEMI. The under the level of detection is going to get maybe sent home. And our goal mm -hmm. is that some of this literature reports, maybe 50% of patients will fall under the level of detection. And this gray zone then becomes like somewhere between 30 and 45% of your patients. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in this gray zone. And we're obtaining 
delta troponins. And depending on how much it changes, that dictates, are they going to observation or admission, or are they going to go home? Mm -hmm. And that change, then there are some who further subgroup that delta troponin cohort of patients into high risk and low risk, saying, if I'm concerned because their initial troponin was in the gray zone, but it's a high-risk patient, then they don't need to sit in the ED for a delta trope. They just need to be admitted to observation and go get their provocative testing. And they can get their repeat troponin elsewhere, not in the ED, whether it's in the OBS unit or as an admission, uh, and get some kind of provocative testing considered because they're just high risk. And yet there are studies that don't take that into account at all. And so our algorithm is looking more and more like the New York subway train station map and less and less like it used to be where it was two-tiered, negative troponin, positive troponin, with or without risk factors. Now mm -hmm. we're looking at negative or positive are the outliers. And really the majority of our patients are falling in the gray zone. And then within this gray zone, we're starting to subdivide and perhaps consider doing risk factor analysis in order to try and determine who goes home. And one other interesting factor, which I hadn't really considered until recently when I read this on a protocol algorithm out of Texas, was the delta troponin declining, not just increasing. So for example, if your cutoff for the delta or the change in the repeat troponin is say 15 nanograms per liter, if it goes up by 15, you go, oh, okay, they've ruled in, they've changed by this much, we're going to go ahead and admit them. But if it goes down by more than 15, they suggest that's also indicative of an acute coronary syndrome, meaning you are catching it on the downswing and there was an event. And given the correct clinical scenario, this decline is also indicative and that patient also should be getting admitted to get worked up for a possible end STEMI. And that's something we don't really talk about very much when it comes to troponin algorithms. We're always focused on, well, it's going up, it's going up, I'm catching it on the upswing because we're, we're catching it so early. But equally concerning would be the patient who decreases by that same amount because they had a bump for some reason. And that's something we don't talk about very often. I, I found that to be humbling when I read it. And it, it definitely stopped me in my tracks and made me want to talk about this more on this podcast because I think it's something that a, a large number of emergency providers are not considering that this is something that we need to stop and pause and maybe talk to cardiology about and say, hey, I have not just an arising delta, but I have a falling delta in a high-risk patient. I think that this is something that we need to consider because I, that's honestly a place where I feel like that's a brand new space for us. Like we're used to troponins either kind of staying the same or going up. And as you said, I find it reassuring that the research shows that we're spending so much more time in this gray zone. I'm a little concerned at how accurate the name of it is because it really does feel that you're, you're really trying to read these fine changes between light and dark and seeing, is that enough of a change? Is this something that is now risky? Do I need to seek out cardiology? Can I just admit this? What is the next step now that I have these two or three numbers? It is a very interesting time, and I'm trying to stay focused on the fact that we're trying to really seek that diamond in the rough of that one 
bad end stemming that you can catch that, that if you get there early, you can save a life. But boy, is it challenging compared to the way it was before back in my day. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, I do. And that doesn't even begin to touch on the entity, which is unstable angina, mm. which, which used to be defined as people who had chest pain at rest, but are not presenting with a STEMI. And we're concerned they have enough risk factors. They have a really good story. We go, oh, this this is sounding much like unstable angina. They need to be admitted and worked up for all of this stuff. Those people can have negative troponins. For sure. And so in this setting, especially when you're looking at all of these pooled analyses of large populations of patients and 50% or more are in the negative on the high sensitivity troponin with a 30-day mortality of zero, it, it kind of begs the question of does unstable angina even exist anymore as an entity in the setting or in the era of high sensitivity troponin? Uh, and honestly, I don't, I don't have anything to refute the fact that it exists still. In my practice, it still exists. If you're a very concerning patient with a very concerning story and a negative or undetectable troponin, I think I'm still putting you in the hospital if I'm still very worried you've got unstable angina. Now, that may be the zebra patient. There may not be very many of those anymore. Uh, I can't say I have very many of those clinical scenarios so far with our adoption of the high-sensitivity troponin, but certainly that population does still exist. At least we think about it in the literature as still existing, and that's just one more wrench in the algorithm. So I'd say the Europeans, the European Society of Cardiology has adopted a zero and one hour pathway for high mm -hmm. sensitivity troponin saying, if you're not a STEMI, all comers get a zero and a one hour troponin. And if they're negative or have less than a predetermined amount of delta change, they're going home. And if they're positive, they've ruled in, then you take on stage two. And in the U.S., I would say the Europeans have had good results with those. Their negative predictive values are 99 point something percent, and their confidence intervals go down to about maybe 97 percent in some of those studies. So there is a little bit of give there. And the in the U.S. version of these algorithms, I see zero and one hour or zero and two hour algorithms with a consideration for how long it's been since the chest pain began, so whether they're presenting in the first three hours or not. And now I'm seeing, I would call this version 3.0 of these algorithms where I'm, I'm bringing back the risk stratification using something like a heart score where if they fall into the gray zone, I'm then using risk stratification to determine whether or not they're going to get a delta and a provocative test in another location, say in the OBS unit or mm -hmm. as an admission, versus just getting a quick delta in the ED and sending them home, maybe as a as a helpful method to try and sift through the up to 50% of other patients who are just sitting now in the emergency department waiting on delta tropes. And all I'm saying is these algorithms can get quite complex and certainly must include lengthy discussions with your ED leadership, your cardiology consultants, and whatever it is that you've decided is going to be your local approach to this at your hospital, because you don't want to be relying on your own interpretation 
of this kind of information in the middle of the night with somebody who has chest pain and, and a heart score of say three, and you're going, gosh, I don't, I don't know where this puts them. I'm looking at a troponin that was in the gray and it's gone up, but it hasn't gone up by very much. But the story is kind of sort of in the gray as well. And they have some risk factors, but not, you don't want to be making this up on the fly. You, you definitely need your algorithmic mapped out approach to what you're going to be doing with these patients. And you need to know it because you might get your hospitalist or cardiologist consultant colleague come up to you and go, oh, the initial troponin was less than five. Their 30-day risk of death is zero. Why are we even having this conversation? Send them home. I'll see them in the office, right? And, you, and now it's up to us to go back and say, oh, yeah, actually, that 2017 meta-analysis did say that their 30-day risk of death was zero, but, but they missed 60 MIs. You know, we're, we're not talking about just death. You can survive and still have an injection fraction of 10% from what's left of your myocardium. It exactly. still matters whether or not the heart got the blood. So now we're kind of in a flip scenario where I'm having to defend or justify my having consulted someone on this patient because they have some risk factors and a concerning story when my consultant's on the other end of the phone saying, whatever, their 30-day mortality is zero or their one-year mortality is so negligible. And I go, yeah, sure. They're not going to die in the next year, I hope. But certainly they have other things, other fates that might become them if we don't intervene. So, so yes, please have this conversation with your cardiology colleagues and your hospitalist colleagues and your ED leadership and make sure you have a, a clear algorithm and make sure you understand it because the problem with confusing or multi-step algorithms is the more steps we put in there, the more propensity for error there is. And mm -hmm. if you've got a 12-step algorithm, you've got 12 opportunities to goof this up. So commit it to memory and then go back and look at it every single time for sure. I would tell you, having worked in so many other hospitals, that this era makes me nervous for the people trying to do that because if every hospital has a different algorithm, trying to keep each algorithm straight is really something that I don't envy that position. And, and I also think to your point that there is some, there is still that role for the art of this decision that it is not just a, what was the troponin? Because in the age of there being such a shortage of echo techs and always there being a challenge and all the backed up primary care and testing that has resulted after COVID, it is not necessarily something where you can get someone to see a cardiologist in three days or get them an echo or a stress in seven days. And I think that if this person's high risk, if they tell a good angina story that was stable and is now unstable, I think you can make a good case that that person shouldn't wait two weeks to have something else that, that stresses them and, and sees what's going on with their heart. And I think that there is still room for us to, to advocate for our patients that, that we think there's something going on here because that, that gestalt really has not been proven wrong in, in terms of its value thus far in, in medicine. Yes. Yes. And oh, by the way, if you follow the latest American College of Cardiology guidelines, which now have reincorporated CT coronary angiography, we don't have any contrast. So uh, <laughs> you, you couldn't uh, do it even if you wanted to. I feel like the gods are even trying to make that go away. They're like, no, 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 we're not bringing that back. No, it, we, we did away with that now. No, it's not. Gracious. All right, everyone. Good luck. Make sure you have your algorithm committed to memory. Well, that's it, everyone. Thanks again for being a listener. Please take our listener survey and don't forget to rate us in whatever podcast store you are listening to. And of course, join us at evmedicine.net for that 25% off birthday discount for the rest of this month 
Until next time, be safe, everyone.